0: I'm Tamar Jacoby. I'm the president of an organization that works for comprehensive immigration reform in Washington called Immigration Works USA um, in the middle of the political battle in DC. But we're not actually, I'm not here to talk about that today. I'm here to moderate this panel uh, about uh, integration from survival to belonging. I'm very pleased to be here with a very distinguished panel of old friends and colleagues. Uh, And what we're going to talk about today is what does immigrant integration really mean in the 21st century? So we're going to step back from that wonderful, concrete, um, vibrant human talk and um, step back a step um, and try to talk about meaning and talk about definitions. Now integration is one of those words that I think most people um, most people in our field, anyway, feel pretty good about immigrants becoming Americans. That's a word that most people think is a good integration is a good thing. I'm sure, there's some people that um, they're nationalists, they're separatists. There's some hardcore multiculturalists who aren't sure they think integration is a good thing. Um, but I think most people think of it as a good. The complexity is when you start to ask what do they mean by integration? What are we really talking about? Now, I'm not going to ask you, but just a random list. You know, getting settled and getting a job, one, one dimension. Becoming a citizen, very different thing, right? But still in that same envelope, integration. Learning how to get a bank account and get a credit card and get into the financial system. Again, totally different from getting a job and getting settled from becoming a citizen, but still falls under that big umbrella of integration. Learning English, buying a home. Participating in the political process, signing up to serve in the military, using the word we when you think about American history or, America, or America's role in the world. I mean, very different things, right? Um, marrying an American or moving up on the job. These are, these are all different things that fall in that big basket that we, that we talk about when we talk about integration, but such different kinds of things such different parts of your life and, and parts of what, what what is important is important to, to a life so I don't know how you know the question is how do we make sense of that com- complex and complicated and different and varied a basket of behaviors or ideas um, you know one easy answer is to say well they're all different dimensions of integration and they all add up. To integration and it's a complex long-term process and that's obviously true right they do all if you're an individual going through the experience those are different dimensions of it and they do all add up over time to one long-term process but the complexity is when you when you actually get into the debate about integration what you often find is that some people use the word to mean some of those things And other people use the word to mean other of those things. And they're not necessarily talking about the same thing. So it is a situation where you have people arguing about stuff where they're using the term to refer to very different parts of it. Um, And for better or worse, and I'm simplifying a little bit here, but it often does boil down to how you identify politically which part of it you focus on, right? So often people who come out of the left or the center left or progressives Focus more on what I would call the objective or functional part of it, getting a job, moving up on the job, um, uh, um, you know, having access to government services, being part of the political process things that, are about, that, are, that can be measured objectively and are about functioning in American society. Now, even in that basket, it's a pretty complicated mix, right? Everything from getting a job to participating in the political process, a lot of different stuff going on there. But then when you talk to people on the center right, what you often find, and a little bit when you go out there and talk to kind of the public at large, for them integration is more about subjective things, less about surviving, less about functioning, and more about where do you feel at home where do you feel you belong? Where's your emotional attachment? Where are your loyalties? Where even, and to use you know kind of a, a right-wing word, if you will, or a word that you hear most often on the right, where's your patriotism? So the question that I'm hoping our panel is going to think about is not who's right in that debate, because obviously both sides are right, right? Obviously all those things are part of the process. But the question is, how do we And it's an important question for how we understand integration, but it's also an important question for how the government is going to try to help encourage integration. What's the relationship between these two big baskets, between these two broad dimensions? I believe that the two dimensions go hand in hand all along the way and that if they're working, they reinforce each other. Um, When you feel you belong in a place or could belong there even potentially you invest more you work harder you build things you put down roots and if you don't feel you belong and you don't feel that opportunities are open to you you don't try very hard and you don't reach very high and you know just quickly two counter examples look at the turks in germany right people who were guest workers for for decades Who until very recently were were all but barred from citizenship? Well, surprise, surprise, because they don't feel they belong, they haven't done very well. They don't do very well. And you can, you know, it's a complicated story. We could talk a long time about it. I'm really summarizing. But by contrast, look at the unlawful immigrants who got amnesty in 1986. And in those days, we called it amnesty. What was the first thing they did? And this has been studied. They went out and went to English classes like big numbers enrolled in English classes. They went out and got to be part of apprenticeships and on-the-job training that they hadn't been doing before. They went out and bought houses in a way that they hadn't before because now they felt they belonged and they felt it was safe to put down roots and and invest in the place. So, you know, and and for me the conclusion is that government and public policy has to think not just about how to help people get open bank accounts and move up on the job, it has to think about how to help people belong from the very beginning. So that's my gauntlet to the panel. Um, that's my opening bid. Um, my panel, my, my fellow panelists may or may not agree with me, but this is the question that I hope they're all going to address. How do these two different dimensions of integration, functioning or surviving, and belonging or attachment fit together? And how can government policy take account of the way they fit together to be as helpful as it possibly can to the newcomers who are trying to navigate the course of becoming fully participating Americans. So I'm going to briefly introduce my panelists in the order that they appear. And I'm going to do it very briefly. Um, They're very distinguished. Their biographies, I'm sure, are online and I'm not going to go through all of their accomplishments and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the names of the people who pay for their professorships Um, (laughs) because that would be the hardest part of the the assignment. Gary Gersel, who's sitting immediately to my left, is professor of American history at Vanderbilt University. He's the author of six books um, and many articles, many of them on the subject of American immigration, ethnicity, and nationality. My rule here is I'm going to give titles and one book apiece. So um, the book I'll I'll name is American Crucible, Race, and Nation in the 20th Century. And apologies, Gary, for not going through more of your distinguished career. Um, Jose Luis Gutierrez is co-director for transnational affairs at the National Alliance of Latin Americans and Caribbean Americans here in Chicago. Before that, he served as director of the Office of New Americans Policy and Advocacy in the governor in the, in the office of the governor, famous Governor Blago, but the office was not let's not the, the office be tainted by the, that governor. Um, Jose is a longtime community activist, um, including um, community community advocate, community leader, including served as president of the federa- Federation of um, Michoacanos in Illinois, so hometown organization. And last but far from least, and the one whose um, chairman, whose professorship I really can't pronounce, uh, is the director of the Keenan Institute of Ethics and of, of Ethics at Duke University, Keenan Institute of Ethics at Duke University, and also associate research professor of public policy studies at Duke University. And the one book I'm going to give him is this wonderful book, um, Truth, Faith, and Allegiance: Immigration and American Civic Nationalism, Becoming American. Um, so with that, um, I hope your microphones work better than mine.
1: Please,
2: We'll, we'll see. Please take, please. I have a strong please. voice, so well, that's not going to help with the video tape. Thank you very much, Tamar. It's uh, great to be here um, in this great city. Uh, thank you all for coming. I want to thank uh, Greg Rodriguez for the invitation to participate in this traveling international uh, public square, which I think is a, a wonderful idea. And I deeply support the kind of enterprise he has in mind, which is to create public space in which all kinds of people can come together to talk about issues of the moment. Uh, Is there a bigger issue in America today than immigration and how we constitute ourselves as a nation? Uh, One can think of a couple, but not many. It's an enormously important issue. Uh, the challenge for us today on this panel is we have seven minutes to tell you something meaningful, uh, because, and our time is short. I'm going to try and do that, uh, and I'm going to try and do it in the spirit of uh, this session. I accept the frame of this session, although at some point we might want to debate it. Because this session privileges the community of the nation. And I'm going to make an argument for why that is important, but I do want to call attention to what our keynote speaker, Louise, was asking us to do, which is to find community as I understood it in non-national terms, in human terms that are somehow different from those of the nation. And I hope at some point in this event today we can have that conversation, since I think it's a very important conversation to have. But for the purposes of this session, I'm going to accept the frame. Uh, of the session. And I want to, um, the question I want to address or put before you is how does belonging to America happen? How does that process occur? I'm a historian, and I'm going to give you a historical perspective, but the kind of perspective I think that has bearing on the current moment. What's implicit in the frame of this panel, I want to make explicit. And that is, we are a better nation if all the people who live in the United States, native-born and immigrant alike, feel as though they belong. That they share a stake in something called America. With that stake comes a shared sense of community, a sense of rights and responsibility of popular sovereignty, that we are in this together and through democratic procedures can exercise our will over a community in which we have a stake. If we take the long view, and that's what historians do, they take the long view. How long a view you take depends on what kind of historian you are. If you're a medievalist, it's a thousand years. If you're an American historian, it's anywhere from five to two hundred. But if we take the long view, we can say that um, incorporating or integrating or assimilating immigrants, however we want to call it, immigrants and their children, getting them to regard America as their home, to develop a sense of belonging to this nation of America. If we look at this historically, we can say that the country has been very successful in doing that, this country has been a destination for at least 70 million immigrants since the founding, approximately 35 million of whom came by the 1920s, approximately 35 million of whom have come since 1965. I think we can say today that those first 35 million who came at some point in their experience became deeply attached to America, and to the idea of America. The process of incorporating, um, of engendering belonging for today's immigrants is a story that is far from complete. We are writing it as we live every day. But if we use history as our guide, we have reason to be optimistic uh, that this will happen. We We should take confidence in our history and know that this process of incorporation, of taking people from many different parts of the world and giving them a sense of belonging in this community or nation we call America. This country has a very successful record in making that happen. And that is a cause for optimism. And here I share deeply Luis's call for optimism. We should know what we have done well, and we should know that we can do it again if we so desire to do it.
1: But if if the United States has been
2: successful in doing this, this has rarely been an easy, brief, or conflictless process. It has often been hard, long, and full of conflict. On the one side, we have had many immigrants who long had a deep uncertainty about whether they wanted to or whether they could belong to America. On the other side, we have the native-born, who frequently emphasized exclusion. If we look throughout the whole of American history, we find many whole classes of the world's people excluded legally from the possibility of becoming citizens of the United States. For most of this country's history, if you were not white, you could not become a citizen of the United States. From the side of the native-born, there has also been pressure on immigrants to be happy, even if they were citizens, with the second-class citizenship. We will give you citizenship, the native-born said, but don't think that you citizens will be like us, those of us who are Protestant, those of us who are WASPs, those of us who are white, or those of us who are of purely European descent. So what is an immigrant who is offered a second-class citizenship to do? One thing to do is to acquiesce, to have a stiff upper lip, to grin and bear it, or grit and bear it, to bide one's time for, in the hope that a better time will come. We can find all kinds of acquiescence of this sort in American history, of a decision to submit to prevailing patterns of American politics, culture, and society. But there's another kind of incorporation, what I call transformational, as opposed to acquiescent. Transformational incorporation is a story of immigrants altering, disrupting, and sometimes transforming the patterns into which they are being fit in ways that allow them to truly embrace the United States as their own. Let me give you two brief examples of what I have in mind. First, the millions of Catholic and Jewish immigrants, mostly from Europe, who insisted in the early parts of the 20th century that America could only really become their home if America came to be defined not as a Protestant land, but as a Judeo-Christian land. This was a profound transformation that happened in the middle decades of the 20th century and would not have happened except for the refusal of Catholic and Jewish immigrants to acquiesce in the demand of the native-born that they submit to a Protestant discipline. The other example, poor, ethnic workers, many of whom lived in Chicago in the 1930s and 40s, who declared that the terms of their incorporation and integration required that America commit itself to a new deal. This is Roosevelt's new deal. A new deal that granted them economic rights that they had not had before, that would allow them a better chance of achieving economic security and of making a home for themselves in America. The struggle of these ethnic workers in the 1930s and 40s was hugely controversial, generated huge battles, deep antagonisms. But in the process of battling both immigrants and the society around them, the native-born, created a different kind of America, that through this struggle America was transformed in ways that made it a place that these ethnic workers, these children and grandchildren of immigrants could accept as their home. America changed, but was still recognizably American. Societies, including ours, think they want acquiescent incorporation from the newcomers. Societies think We're bringing new people in. They should play by our rules. We know what America is like. They don't. They should learn those rules, and they will get by, and they will succeed. What I'm suggesting is that transformational incorporation actually produces deeper and more enduring forms of integration and belonging. It's the immigrants who, and their children, who stand up and say, we want to be part of this country, but we really can't be part of this country on the terms being offered to us. And thus, for us to become a part, America has to change. And if they have the perception that America is changing in ways that reflect their understanding of their place in America... That is where a deep attachment and sense of belonging takes root. And it's, they then change themselves, and through that process of negotiation, through that process of negotiation, come to feel a deep sense of belonging to America, to the United States. And that is the thought I want to leave you with, It's counterintuitive in many instances. It should not work that way. People should come and not make a fuss. And I'm saying the rich forms of belonging that have arisen among the millions of immigrants who have come to the United States, these have arisen through conflict, through struggle, through the effort to change America, to open it in in ways that will make the newcomers feel at home. And through that process of opening, that is the road to deep attachment, to deep belonging. And I think if we're to be successful going forward in this country, some process of transformative incorporation is going to have to happen again. We have reason to be optimistic on that score because we have done it before. Thank you very much.
0: Very provocative. So please, take it away.
3: Well, first of all, I want to thank uh, the Socalo for inviting me to be part of this panel. I'm very honored uh, to be here and, and learning a lot from the, the members of the panel. And, uh, and I want to thank because they are giving me the opportunity to share the immigrant perspective and also uh, my uh, knowledge of being uh, a Latino, a Mexicano in the governor's office working in immigrant integration. And uh, I'm going to start in a different uh, way because I came here from Mexico, from a very small town in Michoacan, 22 years ago. I didn't speak the language at all. And uh, I didn't bring that much money. So my first year, five years, I used to work seven days a week. So in that time, I didn't feel I was part of the American society. I think I was like, my plans were like, okay, I'm going to make some money. I'm going to go back to Mexico, I'm going to start my own business, and maybe if I got lucky, I'm going to have enough money to buy a car. That was my plan. 22 years later, I'm here. And I'm very proud to say that I, I, I love this country. I value the culture, the traditions of this country. But at the same time, I cannot say I don't love Mexico. I don't love my culture. I don't love my communities of origin. So it was very interesting to hear Luis Alberto Rea saying my father was a very nationalistic Mexican macho. Well, then I will say I'm very nationalistic Mexican that understands that being a macho in the United States, not really a nice thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm saying this because I think each day we have a community that even though we are immigrants and we recognize that the opportunity that this country has given us to get better opportunities to get educated, to get a good job, we also have a commitment to help our communities of origin to get developed, to give the opportunities to our friends or families that stay there. But that's, that's something that we can talk another place and lower time. Right now, I want to share with you this sense of belonging to the United States. Because when I was reading the title of the panel, I was Surviving to Belonging. And it is a process. Immigrant integration is a a constant transformation process. And I agree with you. Needs to happen a transformation in the way immigrants are perceived today in the United States. And the United States has been very successful integrating immigrants. I would say yes, but not recently. I don't think right now we have the best policies that are going to welcome immigrants. And I'm gonna switch to Illinois. Why Illinois is perceived as a friendly state to immigrants is not because the governors are nice people or the mayor of the city are nice people and they really believe in what they say. Maybe they do, I don't know. It's because we have a very strong community organizations that have a structure, they have the power to, to put pressure and the legislators, and the governor, and the mayor. That's why we have, like, I would say, friendly policies. And we have been able to not, well, we have been able not to allow the legislators to pass those nasty legislations that we can see in other states like Georgia or Arizona. Here, I'm talking about the grassroots, but also the TAP roots. And when I mean the TAP roots, I'm talking business leaders, I'm talking people like Juan Ochoa, the CEO president of the McCormick Place Navy Pier, that's very committed with the immigrant integration agenda. And uh, I resigned two, two months ago, and uh, now uh, I'm very proud to announce that tomorrow, even though now with my community hat uh, and with the help from the, Uni- the Illinois Coalition for Refugee and Immigrant Rights, we are going to present. Governor Quinn has several recommendations How he can continue The work that historically Illinois have is doing And welcoming and helping Immigrants to be integrated in, in, Into the state It's not going to be easy Because we have A, a budget crisis And we Are going to be in an election year And Resources are not there and I don't think it's the political will to do anything in that direction. But it's a community responsibility to be propositive, to say, you know, this is what we need. This is what the state needs in order to integrate immigrants. And let me say why we have that responsibility. Because a state like Massachusetts, Maryland, New Jersey, and Wisconsin They are pushing in the direction we are going. I mean, they are creating these executive, new Americans executive orders that are helping to create programs. They are helping to have a better understanding between the native and the immigrant communities. And uh, we were very lucky in Illinois, thanks to that we have a strong community that always there, you know, fighting for the immigrant rights to keep the programs. Uh, And I'm talking about. Uh, the New Americans Initiative. I'm talking about the Immigrant Family Resource Program that used to be our region interpretation. I'm talking about uh, programs like the, the Illinois Welcoming Center places where immigrants can go and in one stop they can find all the information they need. I'm talking about where to get health insurance for the kids, where to go to take ESL classes. All the kind of things that to us sounds like a common sense, but believe me, being an immigrant in this country is complicated. And sometimes when you don't speak the language, you're afraid even to knock a door in your neighbor, in, to your neighbor because you are afraid of, that they are going not understand and you're gonna get misunderstood. But the future of the policies that we have in place in Illinois. It's going to depend on the talent, and the ability, and the creativity that all the Illinois races we're going to have and to push these uh, Illinois futures together. That's the campaign we're going to push in the next days. Just with one objective, facilitate this process of mutual accommodation. What does it mean? is integration is how are we going to build? How are we going to create these opportunities for the natives and the immigrants to talk? How are we going to convince the fake organizations, how are we going to convince community organizations to participate in ESL programs? And not only to to practice English, to share experiences. How can we really build that relationship because look at us and I'm looking in the room. We are not we don't look like them. And when I said we don't look like them, I'm talking about the white American Anglo Saxon that used to be the immigrant in the past. Now we, we we are different. I mean we are immigrants with different culture, with different perspectives with different language and with different color, skin color, so that's different. And, and what I'm, I'm saying this because 52% of the immigrants now are from Latin America, and, and from those 22% of the immigrants are from Mexico. So now we are changing the face of America, but we are changing also the culture of America. And now we celebrate Halloween. And I'm very proud to celebrate Halloween, but also we celebrate Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos. You know? We are very proud to be Americans, and we are very proud to be, in my case, very proud to be Mexicans. So I want to finish, and I'm very glad that uh, our dear friend Billy Ocasio and Denise are here from the Governor's Office, so they know that they have been doing a, a great job keeping the programs that historically have been helping immigrants to be integrated. So I'm taking the opportunity to welcome you and and also to invite you to continue fighting for those programs that are really making the difference in the lives of many, many families. And I'm clear that immigration law is a federal law. So let's hope that the Congress and that Barack Obama are going to make the right decision in the future. And I'm very glad that Tamar Jacobi is here and, and, and she gave us an update and some hope that something is going to happen very soon. And we, as immigrants living in Illinois, we have a champion, Congressman Gutierrez that is always fighting for what he thinks is right. And I want to end this. This is not an immigration panel, I want to end some time so we can have answers to your questions. That is our responsibility. If we want to see the change that we think should should happen in the short term, thank you.
4: Noah, adding cleanup. Adding cleanup. Um, well, mm-hmm. whenever um, a, a nice American metaphor there tomorrow, Um <laughs> Uh, whenever I think about these questions of assimilation and integration I I think it helps to have an image or a a picture in your head and the one that always comes to me is an old cartoon from the New Yorker which shows two pilgrims getting off a boat and one of them turns to the other and he says well in the short run I'm here for religious freedom but in the long run I'm looking to get into real estate (laughs) and I think that that the reason I have that in my head is because it captures the combination of let's say, surviving and thriving on the real estate side, and of belonging in the sense of the principles, the commitment, the identification aspect to it. There's a practical aspect uh, to becoming uh, a part of any new place, any community, let alone any nation. And there's a deeply felt, effective, uh, uh, emotional dimension of it connected often to core principles. And I think, as Tamar did to bookend this panel, um, I, I mean, I agree with her entirely that these both matter. She said, obviously, and I, I would hope what she meant is, obviously all of us right-thinking people could imagine that, but it's in a minute I hope to suggest, as Tamar did, it's not obvious in the way we deal with things in politics and policy. And what I want to do in my few minutes is um, support the framing that Tamar provided, that both the functional and the uh, emotional dimensions matter and go hand in hand has been described, or can go hand in hand, uh, and, but talk about why that matters so much and how we might advance the case. And I think the first thing to do is to begin, in a way, what Gary did with his caveat, which is the point about, we. it's a cliche to say we live in a global or transnational world now in which goods and services and people routinely move uh, across borders, and There are many people who live both here and there, simultaneously to some degree. Uh, The difference, of course, between goods and services and, and people is that you don't have to deal with the emotional, effective, commitment, belonging dimension of goods and services. You do with people. I think immigration, legal and illegal, has become the human face of all these broad changes that we're dealing with. Particularly, the economic changes in a globalized world. when factories shut down, when jobs go overseas, people feel dislocated, just not in the same way, but in a similar enough way as when people leave one country and come to another. And I think what happens is that immigrants become the human face of this, both for good and for ill. And the challenge that we have, the, the, the challenge that we have, is to recognize that when they are the human face of this, attending to both the functional and the belonging dimensions of this. Now, we have left behind an older model in this country's history from 100-odd years ago, which was much harsher in terms of how it sought to bring about that change, how it wanted to put belonging first and demand loyalty right up front. Teddy Roosevelt thundered, help me out here, Gary, no... There's no room for hyphenated Americans, right? There was a, and, and we have gained a lot by losing that, by not having that harshness. But we shouldn't fool ourselves. We've also lost something. Because what goes with making demands is a sense of commitment from people who are here as well. And I think that challenge that we're faced right now is that in the absence of an older model, in the disaggregation and the discrediting of an older model, there's a lot of confusion. Just as most immigrants need a welcoming center. How do I get by in this country? What do I do? How do I fit in? How do you act in public here? How do I navigate these tensions? Well, so too, to many native-born citizens, know, well, what should we expect? What are the rules today? What am I allowed to say? How does language fit into this? What are the rules and expectations? The bargain, that basic bargain in any community, and in particular in any nation, between what you have to get up and give, and I agree that that happens on both sides here. I think our biggest problem right now on these issues is that we're all thoroughly confused about that, and we tiptoe around it, and we use these old terms and phraseologies, as Samar suggested, but we don't know what the content might be about that. And the result of that is our politics today. The result is these wild swings that you see from one extreme to another. Either it's demands for rights all the time for everybody, or it's demands for official English and deportation, one or the other. And in 86 it's one thing, and in 1996 it's another, and we don't get good policies that serve immigrants or Americans from those wild kind of swings, and if I'm right, that it's the absence of having something we can clarify in the bargain, that, that's what's missing, that's what's, prevent, that's what's missing from stopping these wild swings. Because just as Tamar said, you have this focus on, half the people I talk to talk about assimilation, identity, commitment values, and the others talk about inclusion and educational advancement and protection and equal rights. I've read a number of publications that came out of the governor's office and the Illinois coalition here that are terrific, but to be candid, be candid, they tend to fall, in my view, more on the functional side of things, more on the what are the practical things that need to happen. Now, we could talk more about this, but give me for a moment that judgment. And then I read task forces put out by the last administration, which tend to fall on the other side on the, we need to have loyalty and assimilation up front. And this is a problem because then our whole approach to integration and assimilation is makeshift, it's divided, and it's void of any intentionality on any of our parts. No wonder we're all confused. And this is not merely a political problem, it's a substantive problem for precisely the reason Tamar suggested. The notion that when you, and here I don't want to just say on the immigrant side, let me speak to it on the American side, the native-born side, so to speak. When native-born Americans see the sense of identity and belonging and commitment that you articulated, and that I think immigrants often articulate, look at the names of those who are dying in Iraq and Afghanistan right now as a statement of patriotism. But when you see that, when native-born Americans see that and hear that, it increases their willingness to support and provide for the functional integrative survival dimensions of things. And at the same token when immigrants are given help and, are, and can, to negotiate these difficulties, it gives them more reason to believe in all these grand statements about civics and principles and belonging and patriotism. So these things need to go together politically and substantively and they're absolutely divided right now. What we need then is confidence-building measures. We can't all hold hands and say, kumbaya, yes, we're all for loyalty and we're all, we're all for providing health insurance and let's just do that. We do have different angles and approaches on this. But I don't know that they have to be completely oppositional. So, for instance, you can say we ought to emphasize English and citizenship. And we ought to make sure that we're getting good outcomes from those things. And at the same time, We ought to give lots of flexibility in the methods in which local communities can encourage and improve access to English and naturalization. It can be a both and. We should look at the schools and we should say we need to set high expectations of all of our students and particularly if you look at the Hispanic dropout rate, it's significant. It's difficult. We need to address that and it needs to be addressed in part by setting the right kind of expectations about who goes to college, why we expect it, what commitments immigrants and their children have to this society, and by providing the means and by intervening early on with families to help them. These can be both and if we clarify the bargain, what Americans owe and what immigrants owe to each other. And if we do that, We'll get a warm and helpful welcome for immigrants, I think. And we'll get the progress towards citizenship and commitment, both in fact, which I think goes on all the time, and equally important, in perception. We cannot underestimate that. They have to go together. So my motto is clarify the bargain. Thank you very much.
5: Um, My name is Rafael Santana. I'm a a graduate student at the University of Chicago. for the sake of you know, this conversation, I also have to accept the belonging survival uh, dichotomy. But it seems it seemed like every one of you hinted at this idea of belonging without and, and maybe kind of intimated at what that actually means, like on the ground when you're actually there as an immigrant and within the community. You, know, you were talking about investing in the community, buying a home, you know, that implies some sort of safety that if I'm an immigrant and I buy a home, I won't get deported and then I lose my house. You know or um, there were uh, some other ideas about um, you know it just they were hinting at this idea of belonging, but what does it actually mean? you know like because functionally it seems just more important, like I need to get a credit card, you know I need to get the Mika so I can get a bank account you know that 's really what 's most important now. And in the long run, you know, maybe, you know, yeah, I, I belong in this country. And that tends to be the story among immigrants anyway. So what I'm trying to ask is, like, what do you really mean by this idea of belonging? Like, um, and why, you know, why is that even so important?
0: Do you want us to answer each question or ha- take uh, a few questions? And you feel free to anyone to answer. Okay, okay, should I take a shot first? One. Since, I, since I put the term on the table and then, is that fair? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think you went right to the first piece of it right if you don't feel that you're legal here and it's safe to go out you don't feel you belong so you know taking all you know legalization path to citizenship you know that's that's certainly being part of the of the legal um population here that's got to be the first step in belonging right like like but then the next step in my view is feeling that you, that really, that you can grow up to be president, or your kid can grow up to be president. That opportunities, that it's enough your place that every opportunity is really open to you. The point about the Turks in Germany is they don't feel that every opportunity is open to them. They feel like they live basically in a little camp um, where most of the opportunities are be on the other side of the wall. And if you don't feel that you are, are, it's enough your place that you can go on to do whatever opportunities there are in that place, I don't think you feel that you belong. Now we can go on for a long time about what is really belonging to me and we could talk you know, for the rest of the afternoon, but that would be kind of my bare bones definition. Tomorrow well, you want we'll to direct us? Yeah, please. Well, whoever wants to take
3: okay. it. Uh,
2: The There are arguments that uh, citizenship is more instrumental than effective today than it was a hundred years ago. Uh, that citizenship is about getting uh, your, your papers, it's about having economic opportunity, it's about being able to make your way in the world. And there are some who argue that's enough. Uh, that, that, we, that we shouldn't ask more. So the question is uh, what I mean by belonging is a sense of membership in something called the American nation. And you're right to ask and many of you may be wondering does that really matter anymore if it mattered once? You know, maybe Teddy Roosevelt was wrong that something like that really mattered. It matters to me because if you live in a diverse society, uh, you have to be able to say, how do we create a common identity so that we can do things in the society greater than our own self-interest or greater than the interest of, of small communities? Uh, how can this nation undertake something like health care, for example? We'll see, we'll see if it can. Uh, how can it take, undertake other big programs uh, to improve the lives of everyone? I think a society can only do that if people are able to have an identity that transcends ethnic, racial, religious lines, that there's a common place which we say we can share, and out of that shared space comes a sense of social solidarity that allows the society to take on big things. So that's why I think a larger form of community and belonging still matters. The question is, is there a better one than a national belonging? Because national belonging, nations have done a lot of bad things, which is one reason why people don't want to be so attached to them anymore. The question then becomes, what, is, what takes its place? And I think humanity is too big. I think we can't feel solidaristic enough about humanity to say, take care of people, really, beyond, beyond individual rights. So I think there could be alternative forms of community, but I think we do need that sense of belonging to a greater whole. Noah?
4: Jose no, Luis? No, I'm, no, 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 no Noah. answer. Go ahead. I, I would just say it's. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's hard to pin down, but emotions are hard to pin down. That's the nature of that. I think it's about a sense of a shared past and a shared future. And you see it if you want an example of it. If you go into a school and children can look up there and see George Washington and say, my forefather, right. and feel absolutely no embarrassment about that, whether their parents have been here, their families have been here 200 years, or they arrived two years ago. That's a sense of attachment that George Washington was my forefather. Now, the hard question becomes, as Gary indicated, what happens when you have other attachments and they're to other nations? And that's the larger question he he was getting at, and I I agree. But, But if you're asking what is it and when do you know it when you see it, that's when I see it.
3: For me, it's very simple. I feel like I'm American and I'm very proud. I love this country. But at the same time, I cannot deny that I love Mexico and I, you know, I feel like I, I'm Mexican and I have a, uh, you know, also a belonging to, to, to Mexico. So it's like, that's why I was making fun of Ruiz, you know, because the nationalistic father. I mean, I think we are a being nationalistic uh, community, too, each day, you know, we're going that direction.
6: We have another question all the way to your left over here. Hi, my name is Shweta, and um, <laughs> I've been made to stand here and ask it, so I'm a little conscious right now. But, you know, uh, my question is, um, might sound a little politically incorrect, and I have no grounds at all in my background to be left or right. I don't consider myself an immigrant either. I do work here, though. Um, I- I'm going to just give you an example, and I was wondering if uh, the fourth and the third panelists could specially address the question or comment that I had. Um, you know, in India right now, there is um, in, in Mumbai, erstwhile Bombay, there is this movement to kick laborers out who belong to the rural so called cow belt because the uh, people who are from the state of Maharashtra feel that they're taking up their resources in a physical space and not uh, respecting the Maharashtrian culture and the cosmopolitan culture of Bombay. And um, the fourth panelist's comments, uh, when I looked at them in, you know, in comparison to the third panelist, just made me realize that uh, e- economics is a huge part of obviously um, you know, the political debate that we have. It's not really openly addressed most of the time. And um, my simplistic interpretation of that whole argument we had some time ago that the new Americans, that, that the new Americans were going to uh, pay for the social security of the older Americans New Americans are a euphemism for, I think, immigrants from Mexico, and Old Americans are a euphemism for a uh, so-called WASP community who are older. And it, I, I was just wondering, the whole point of the New Americans earning in this circumstance is probably due to what the older generation of Americans created. And referring back to your statement about how much you love Mexico and how much you love America, um, mm-hmm. I wonder if, if there is an economics component of this love which would be different if we looked at the remuneration sent by um, immigrants to their Mexican uh, counterpart, you know, back home versus the investment they make in America. And I know that participation in military is one extreme form of identification. Yes, they are patriotic. Yes, they're giving up their lives. But there's this milder form of giving, you know. So as an individual, I feel this compulsion. I have these four charities which serve Americans and I donate to them. But. I'm wondering if some kind of political initiative or dialogue between people who actually matter, I mean, this is probably the choir and we are preaching to it, but people who matter outside, who would realize that by giving in economic sense, would it make a difference ultimately to policy about uh, how immigrants and their sense of belonging is perceived? You know, I don't know if, if my comment is clear, but I just thought that the third and the fourth panelists had this huge conflict which was not really stated but I wonder if you, know, you could address this in some way.
3: Well, in the case of Mexico, we came here to the United States because we are looking for jobs. We are looking for opportunities. But in the same time, we look what's happening in Europe. We believe that if we develop our communities of origin, if we create the conditions for our families or friends to, to have a decent life in Mexico, they won't look to the United States like the only opportunity to move ahead. So I agree with you, it's, it's like an economic component. And believe me, I really love Chicago right now because it's my town and because I haven't been here for 22 years, but I still don't like the cold. I hate, you know, <laughs> the but I'm not here because, and, and when I decided to come here is now because I was, you know, Want to see the snow and play, make a Santa? Oh no! Because you know, I was looking for a better opportunity. I was looking for an opportunity to get educated and for an opportunity to provide for my family back home. That was the reason. And I'm very active in the hometown associations, and we have a lot of projects going on in Mexico greenhouses. We are. You know, invest in a oil plant in Mexico because we want to regenerate the conditions for our people to stay there. So, yeah.
0: Do you want to answer that now?
3: Um,
4: yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I fully, fully understand it, but I, I look, the, your story is the story of the New Yorker cartoon in a way. Immigrants have come for lots of reasons. Many of them for much more instrumental reasons, and some Americans say, "Oh, that's terrible! They're just coming here to, to take from us, or to." It might. But you know, people go and do things for all kinds of reasons, and then things change over time, and they're intermixed. And what became instrumental, and in people who said they were going to go home end up staying, and then they end up running in Chicago, and pretty soon the White House. And this is the nature of things. I mean, and this is this is okay, and this is good. What what, what where the challenge is? is when we have a disjunction between economic contribution and presence, and civic and identity contribution and presence. That's Tamar's example from Germany. Where Turks are there, they've been there, they're working, but they don't have a civic or a belonging sense of, uh, uh, because they're prevented from it in that case. And I think what we're talking about jointly here is how do you make sure that the economic and instrumental is equally matched by the civic and the identity. But it's more complicated today, because how do you do that at a time when we live in an increasingly transnational and and global world, and people have multiple attachments, which are natural? I mean, people have always had them, but they're easier to keep up now. And it complicates the story here and goes to Gary's point about um, you want a social solidarity that makes some degree of health care Possible, But you, you've got to build that on something, and that can't be built on because cosmopolitans like it. It's got to be built on because Americans are willing to commit to it. I,
3: I just want to mention something when he was talking about that the United States has been very successful integrating immigrants. I was thinking, yeah, a hundred years ago when the Irish came to the United States, they were struggling here, and you can check a lot of books. They really had a hard time being part of the American society. But now, in St. Patrick's days, everybody, even the Mexicans, we are Irish. <laughs> <laughs> My question here is, Is going to be a day in the future where on one day everybody's going to be Latino, it's going to be Puerto Rican, it's going to be Mexican. I don't know. It's, it's going to depend if we're going to be able to keep the ability to welcome, to integrate, or being what we are today, are national immigrants.
1: Uh, my name is Ramon Gutierrez. I, I was very um, uh, uh, conflicted about what you said about belonging, for the simple reason that you seem to offer it almost as if simply integration, either in functional or emotional ways, would automatically... So, so the question becomes to me is, we have whole populations in the United States that uh, have been citizens for generations, uh, hundreds of years, and if you read the front page of the New York Times this morning, the the case of uh, of the of the black neighborhood in Cleveland where all these women had been killed and police had consistently refused to come to those neighborhoods, to investigate those murders, to even give those communities police protection. So I, so I was wondering why there was such, a, such almost a utopic tone about the possibility of incorporating people into the nation state, when in fact, once incorporated, that, in, that incorporation is quite differential depending on the skin color of the individuals, their class location, and uh, the particular zones that they seem to be coming from and how they're integrated into the economic structure of the United States. Uh,
4: You want to go that way? Yeah. Sure. Um, Yeah, this is the question about the problem isn't so much um, resident aliens as alienated residents, right? I mean, this is the question of, you know, look at people who don't pay taxes, look at people who aren't committed, who can't even do civic service, who don't want to support their neighbors, at all, all kinds of things. Turn on the TV at any time of the day, and you sort of wonder, this doesn't seem like um, the, the kind of belonging and identity and attachment, which in a free market society is always going to be hard to pin down and elusive. M- my point, if I understand the question right, is not... Um, that Americans, all Native-born all belong and are attached and have this deep commitment and solidarity. We just have to make sure immigrants have that. No. In fact, I think the story is pretty clear that over the generations, it's been immigration and the process described by others on the panel that has reinvigorated and actually made real a lot of that sense of commitment and identity. But it is a process that has to go on. It, has to be, it doesn't naturally just run by itself. And, and the question of, you know, how the Irish became American or, you know, is an interesting question. Part of it is, well, they weren't black, right? And part of it is, well, you know what? We kept, we sl- shut the doors in 1924 on other immigrants. And so there was this long period where we didn't have a lot of immigrants coming in. And part of it was we had these coercive uh, Americanization programs. Now, none of these things I'm proud of, I think, are pretty. But to deny that they were present at a time when you went from uh, Teddy Roosevelt to Franklin Roosevelt in 20 or 30 years so that the people who were called the wild Irish could suddenly be part of all Americans support economic rights and we have a new deal, that's a stunning story and it takes work and some things that are ugly sometimes.
3: Well, I understand belonging as a process of accommodation, but... At the same time, integration is, for us, I mean, I'm talking about like a binational, bicultural, bilingual individual, is the opportunity to fully participate in the American society with respect and dignity. And that's what I think.
2: I think this, Ramon, you're right. This, um, the country has um, had an extraordinary record of discrimination and exclusion, um, a lot of it based first on religion and then also on race. I think the country's had some extraordinary achievements in terms of uh, integration and incorporation None of them have come easily and none of them have come without the struggle of those excluded, which is why my emphasis on the importance of transformative incorporation. If you're going to become as a Catholic or a Jew or a black or a Mexican uh, or a Chinese or Japanese, if you're going to become an American and really feel that you belong to this society, this society is going to have to change. Some of the changes that have happened as a result of those struggles have been extraordinary, and, and one, of which, one of which is so extraordinary we don't talk about it anymore. This country was founded to be a Protestant refuge. It was not a place for Catholics, and it was not really a place for Jews. This country has been so successful in incorporating immigrants of those faiths, perhaps nowhere more so than this great city. It's such a success, we don't talk about it anymore as ever having been a problem. In fact, when we teach American history, we sort of underestimate the significance of religious conflict. That's an achievement. The story of race is, is uh, much more um, uneven. And I think you can make a case that the losses have been as great or as greater than the gains in that way. And the big question of our moment is uh, can we overcome the racial barrier that has marred so much of um, efforts at belonging to America? Uh, what Noah said about the, how did the Irish became American, the famous title of the book is how the, um, how the Irish Became White. And an awful lot of Europeans became American by becoming white and turning around and visiting exclusion on those who were not white. Uh, There's a long history of that, and and anyone can reasonably conclude that we may never overcome that. Except we also now have um, an African-American president, something that was unimaginable even um, 30 years ago. Uh, And a second-generation immigrant whose father was an African, unimaginable 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, So there's also reason for hope. And uh, if it's, you may be right that we don't get there and the inequities based on race continue to, and class continue to reproduce themselves. Uh, if we get there, it's got to be through a hell, hell of a lot of tenacious struggle by those who feel the exclusion most intensely, who demand that they will subscribe to American ideals if America changes to accommodate
0: and so, so my answer is that, it, I'm going to mangle the quote, but the famous quote about, you know, democracy is not a very good system except that it's better than the others. So, you know, I would not say um, we, I mean, obviously you're right. Obviously the inclusionary model has not worked for everyone and it hasn't worked perfectly probably for anyone. And it's a painful, agonizing, difficult process when you go through it. But we do it better than any other country on the planet, like by a lot. Um, of, of people coming here from afar and creating that kind of community and sense of belonging, and we're in it together, and then we come together to solve problems. Now, that doesn't mean you, by any means that you turn a blind eye to where it doesn't work, but there are two ways to go about it. You know, I'm, I'm, I, my life is a very practical goal. I work in Washington to try to make things different or better, and there are two ways to go about doing that. One is to say what's wrong, and how do we fix the pieces that are wrong, but there's another way to do it that's to say, what have we actually done right in the past that we can lift up and build on and I see at least in the incorporation realm that trying to figure out what we've done right in the past that has worked because we did do this very well 100 years ago and now we're facing it again with another generation you know much bigger how are we going to build it so that it works for you know the people who are gonna be coming here, who've come here in the last 20 years and are gonna keep coming here. And yes, we could say, well, it doesn't work here. Let's fix those things. And we need to do that. There need to be people that sort of take that approach. But there's also, I think, you need to say, what has worked in the past and how do we find the essence of that and make, make that work?
4: We have another question in the front right
7: here. Hi, I'm Cynthia Laboy. Um, The question I have is, I understand you're saying education. There's a lot of Latins that are dropping out of school, um, formatting them into Americans. When someone says to me, I was born here in the United States, and they say to me, what nationality are you? I say, I'm Puerto Rican. Um, I've been told several times, you're not Puerto Rican, you're white, because you were born here in the United States. I am Puerto Rican. Um, (laughs) That is my nationality. I am a Latin. Um, and Hispanic, considered both to me. Um, the one question I have is, has anybody thought about, and I think this is where he's coming to and he's trying to say is, why are we not incorporating the Latin people with their Latin cultures? Let's incorporate their Latin cultures and teach the American their Latin cultures, Their gifts and their ideas and what they have to offer us, not automatically assume that they're in a melting pot. To me, it's a salad. You're going to learn from everyone. There is no melting. You should not have to lose your culture nor your nationality as a Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, Colombian, Ecuadorian. doesn't matter what your nationality is lose it because you've been put into a melting pot in the United States of America or in Illinois and say you became a citizen of the United States so you're white. No, I'm still Latin and I should be able to speak my language, I should be able to still have some of my old culture beliefs and my activities that I do in my my country or in those other countries for those other people Um, and try, the Americans have to try to learn those cultures and those beliefs that they have in order for something to work, for something to tie together. Because if you cannot tie the two together, you're never gonna have what you really want. I believe that truly, because you cannot divide the two. It comes together and it's not a melting pot, it's a salad. Because we all should learn from each other. There is lots to learn.
3: Yes. And they don't, some of them, they don't love us because they don't know us. No nos quieren porque no nos conocen, you know?
1: Okay,
7: we have a okay. question. Oh, no, wait, let's,
0: let's, How many questions are we going to have just so uh, we have is, some sense of what in? Yeah, of. this is going to be a okay, But I think everybody probably wants to, I think Noah wants to weigh in, it, and I certainly do. Yeah.
4: So I, I think I want to say two things. One is, Uh, I don't want to be misunderstood in the sense of I I couldn't agree more that um, if this is about people losing their culture in some uh, forced sense, right? I mean, people do lose things over generations. That's what happens. It's often the forces of the market that that happens. And the second or the third generation no longer speaks the language or isn't interested. And that's a process that happens that is broader than any government program. But if we're talking about any kind of uh, program or concerted effort from Americans, native-born or citizens, that would suggest that uh, a culture that, that, that Latin culture needs to be lost, that's absolutely wrong. That's part of what was wrong with 100 years ago. Um, you use the word "gifts," and it's a word that was used 100 years ago as well: immigrant gifts that there was a notion of things that immigrants were bringing that we had forgotten. And there is a lot of good that can come out of that. And if there's any doubt on this question, so we should be very clear on it. There are even ways in which certainly scholars suggest that that, um, it's precisely strong families, strong sense of religiosity that helps children of immigrants uh, resist some of the difficulties of growing up in America today. And so these are actually, it's the immigrant culture which is the best defense of, about the worst things in American life. So there's a lot to be said there. The question, I think, is at a second level that becomes harder. Because I, you know, melting pot, I, I'm not wild about that. Um, but salad, you know, the dressing, it's kind what of, it holds us together, it's kind of thin. For me, the question is what is, you know, you have to get at the question of, Where is the diversity? How is it accommodated, promoted, engaged? And where is the solidarity? And the solidarity is not purely at this cultural level of, now we share these different kinds of experiences. It comes down to some questions about, for instance, no one should lose Spanish, but how do we promote English? And then you get into the arguments over English instruction and bilingualism and such. But that's where the rubber meets the road, not on these other questions. Can
7: I say something? My daughter goes to Wisconsin schools. My daughter resides in Wisconsin with me. I live in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, it is automatically enforced that all children learn Spanish as well as all children that speak Spanish learn English. And that is the way you will end up with both. That way there will not be an issue regarding the, the, it, the question or the statement that you made regarding the fact that they should incorporate English. Well, anything? if you incorporate yeah. both but in I the school to, system, then they should be able Listen to learn both and they, they should be able to speak both. To last question.
4: I, I won't.
0: So um, let's have the last question and then maybe we'll all have a chance to say something.
7: Yes. <laughs> Thank Hello? you.
5: Hello, my name is Maria Medvedeva, and um, thank you so much for the discussion. It's wonderful. My, si- my question is pretty simple. According to U.S. census projections, population projections, the minority population will become majority by 2050. How do you think it will change the meaning of integration, if it will?
0: Yeah, good question. So what order wow. do we want to go for our last statements? Um, you want to go in the reverse order that we spoke. No, do you want to go for the last statement? Answer the answer to this question. Is anything else you want to say?
4: Sure. I mean, I think the short end. I think we don't know how it will change it. it, 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 it I think at the core thing I can say is, to the degree that we're successful at the combination of what we've been calling the sort of integration and belonging dimensions here, it won't matter. Now, that's a hope because these are complicated things, but it won't matter. I do think that, I mean, this is an important conversation, and I think the language is one example of it that gets just at this question. Can it be both and? It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful idea. Um, it's a possibility. Um, I worry about the uh, extent to which still we have... Um, uh, people not learning English enough because we're not providing enough and we're not setting enough standards for it. Do I think that everyone ought to also learn Spanish or another language? Absolutely. I think that would be terrific. I just want to make sure it doesn't come at the expense of those those people who will be the least well off and the most left behind because we haven't set a clear enough expectation about the importance of English. I think most immigrants want to learn English. I know that, and their children do. And I think the general direction is a good one, which is why I'm hopeful. But it's not guaranteed. And there are enough problems that we see and enough difficulties that I worry about solutions that, with all respect, sound like they could work just fine. But there's a reality of people being left behind. And I'm not convinced, though I I could be, that that's the only solution or the best one to get us to that, that future.
3: I think we should learn from the experience of the European community. I hope in the future we're going to have this North American region that's going to you know, be more tolerant, it's going to be more diverse. Uh, or maybe the America. you know, this, uh, but one thing in America is the whole continent, not only the United States. Uh, that's what I think we should do. All work in that direction because we don't need to invent the wheel. The wheel has been invented already. And we need to look to other places and identify the best practices so we can accommodate and, you know, go in that direction.
2: Uh, speaking of Europe, um, <laughs> when I talk to my friends in Europe who are mostly progressive, uh, I ask them about the European Union, um, they're pretty pessimistic. About its future in terms of cultural integration, and I think a lot of it has to do with Islam, and I think a lot of it has to do with the sense emerging in Europe that uh, they don't know whether they can negotiate that difference, whether a sense of Europeanness will be strong enough to accommodate that diversity. I have hope for America. I um, I hope it's not a utopian hope, um, but what I take from history is. Uh, is that America has gone through enormous cultural changes, has absorbed enormous numbers of people, um, has made them into America, even as they make America into a different kind of place. There's no doubt that the demographics are pointing us to another major transformation. In some ways, it's unique, in the sense that this would be the first moment when a majority of people in the United States are not white. On the other hand, it's not unique if we define the older America not simply in terms of whiteness but in terms of Protestantism. We have been through major changes. I think the key, two keys, um, one is to um, develop a sense of diversity that doesn't overwhelm commonality. I think that's what the European fear is now, the European fear that I talk, that I hear when I talk to the people I know, that the diversity is too great, the commonality can't hold. Uh, so I think as America goes forward, there has to be some kind of balance uh, between those two, because if you lose too much commonality, you are in danger of a kind of uh, fragmentation. Uh, so uh, that will be very important uh, to negotiate, and I think also... Th- We have reason to hope in that regard. Uh, In Theodore Roosevelt's age, very few people departed from the principle that homogeneity defined nationness. Almost everyone at different parts of the political spectrum felt that. I don't think most people feel that way anymore. I think we have already, as a result of the civil rights revolution, gone a long way uh, toward defining diversity as a centerpiece of what America stands for doesn't mean the process is complete, but we have progressed a long way. I hope we can continue to develop in that way. My greatest fear is that, um, the, uh, is, is one too great a distance and too much fragmentation. That's one fear. A second fear is that race will reproduce its ugly face in America, so that to become American continues to be defined not necessarily as becoming white, but in terms of not being black. This has been a mode of incorporation into America for a couple hundred years. And if we ever think that we have vanquished this tendency in our society, we are fooling ourselves. And the final comment about the importance of a home, a job, very basic stuff. There's no doubt that uh, part of America's success at incorporation uh, and uh, cultural change has been the ability to give people not just a sense of belonging, but economic security, economic opportunity. Uh, And if we don't find our way out of this economic crisis in a way that kind of renews economic dynamism in America, uh, then at a future date, all this talk about diversity and belonging won't be worth much.
0: Um, I would like to answer your question and then segue to your question. I don't think anyone up here, I don't think any of us, I mean, there definitely are panels where you have people who stand up there and say, you know, integration means becoming American and forgetting what you brought. I don't think there's a single, I don't think there's an impulse, a bone in the body of any of these four panelists that would say, becoming American means forgetting what you brought. You know, I like to say, you know, ask room, like, what are the three things that you love most about America? And I guarantee you, for every person here, two out of three of them were something that an immigrant brought from another country sometime in the past 200 years. Whether it's the food you eat, you know, what, the way we spend our Saturdays, the way we do our politics, except for the landscape all the things that we think of as quintessentially American are things that came from another country and we absorbed and sometimes transformed, but that became the things that we love about America. So immigrants from the beginning have been bringing what they bring and making America what it is. And it's definitely a two-way street. Integration, you know, that's kind of the cliche in the business. Integration is a two-way street. But, and here's where I'm going to go back, but, I think there's something about being American that has to do with our political ideals, has to do with how much we love freedom, has to do with how much we love tolerance, has to do with the way we organize our society that's quintessentially American, that you don't really find any place else or the mix, that has to do with the fact that who you are doesn't really matter who your father was that who you are, in the, and it's not always true, but for, for, for the, what we believe in, it doesn't really matter um, what, what community you come out of, that you can transform yourself, that free will and what you do matters and you can transform yourself. That quintessence of being American, that's been there, I would argue, from the beginning, and all those changes and all those people who come and all that they add has helped enrich that, but that has remained. And I think that goes, that's a little bit of what Gary's saying. What we have in common is more important than our differences. That's what we have in common, is that spirit and those ideals. And it isn't just a bunch of ideals on paper, it is kind of a spirit. And I would think that it, so it's a two way street, but I'm not comfortable with saying it's a two way street to the point that we lose that. So, you know, there's a little bit of an American, you know, pride, patriotism stake that I'm putting in the ground there. Yes, it's a two-way street, but we don't want to lose that. And, you know, I would argue that as we become, a, a, you know, if this term still means anything, I mean, I agree with Noah that if, if what we're talking about here succeeds, that by the time we get to that point, the, those terms aren't going to really mean anything, majority, minority. I mean, we don't go around saying anymore, are we majority, I mean, Gary's example is great, are we majority or minority Protestant, you know? Nobody even thinks about it because it doesn't matter that much. And, you know, are we going to say, are we majority, minority, you know, Anglo-Saxon or all that complicated mix? I mean, you know, when the statistics of of your generation, more than two-thirds of people have dated somebody of another group. You know, what's it even going to mean, majority, minority, by then? So, you know, I'm of the hope that by the time we get there, those terms don't mean anything. It doesn't mean that your old loyalties and your language and the things that you love that your grandmother brought here, they will still be strong. But I hope we're living in a day where what we have in common. And is so much more important
7: than our differences that um, that it's that it's a meaningless concept.